Today's podcast is with Adam Pintofanti. Adam is the head of academy strength and conditioning at Houston Dynamo MLS football team or soccer team. Prior to this, he was head of academy sports science at Melbourne City and underpinned the W League program, which was a successful program winning the premiership this year. In the next few months, given the situation with COVID-19, the theme of my podcast will continue to be a mix of career development and topics relevant to the sports involved, in this case, obviously football or soccer. I first met Adam in 2008 before he went overseas with an academy to, play, to Italy to play football. He returned in 2011 and I started helping him with his fitness and mentoring in general. He then started with a certificate three in fitness, which over nine years progressed to his current position and a master's in football science. The key point that we make here in this podcast is nine years. It was quite a grind. Seems like yesterday, but career development does take a while. And I think it's very pertinent right now where people are going to be panicking in the next six months or a year, or not so much panicking, but worry. Adams grasped every opportunity, of course, but he did have to earn money at times in areas outside football and double up his time working. Before leaving Australia, he was also still playing NPL football and has played a significant amount of football in his career. And let's get chatting. G'day, Adam. How are you, mate? Yeah, very good, Lawrence. How are you? Yeah, good, good, yeah. Um, obviously, uh, you're in the midst of COVID-19 in the States, which is pretty crazy, and, and, and you're obviously at home doing heaps of Zooms. But just before all the Zooms and all that sort of stuff, what was uh, what's an overview of your job with Houston? You know, what is the job and what's an overview and what, what were you doing before, you know, the, the shit hit the fan, I suppose, for want of a better word? Yeah, yeah, so look, it, it, it's a new role at the club. They they never had a SD coach um, in the academy environment, so so basically it, it, it's very much a blank canvas and, and a new project, which is which is fairly exciting. So the players were, were were very keen to get started. So more or less, my role just includes you know everything from load monitoring, uh, designing all the, the strength conditioning programs, um, to assisting the coaches with just sort of like daily processes and as well as training design. So. You know, a, a big part of my role is, is working closely with the coaches on, on designing drills and, and making sure we're achieving you know, both the tactical and the, and the physical objectives day to day. Fantastic. All right. So how long have you been there? Uh, so coming up on uh, three months now. We'll, we'll, go, we'll go into that a little bit later because you've got some perspective, I suppose, of football or soccer in the States versus Australia and, and obviously Europe. Uh, we'll chat about that later. So, so what's a brief overview of your Melbourne City gig? that you had for a couple of years, like the current gig, not what you did before. We'll talk about that later. Yeah, look, at, at Melbourne City, it was a, a very similar role, probably just a, a little bit more advanced in terms of what we had already rolled out in, in the academy pathway. Um, so, so again, very much just around you know monitoring the players and, and, and designing sessions with the coaches and, and ensuring that uh, we're keeping the players nice and fit. And then, obviously, with the main objective being, uh, you know, Play development, both from a physical, technical, tactical perspective. So, obviously, my main role was the physical side of things, but you know, the club is really big on you know their sports scientists or their streaming mission coaches, whatever you want to call it, um, integrating with the coaching staff and, and and assisting in that way to ensure we get the the, the best possible uh, development plan for each player. But you you also were working with the W League team, weren't you? Yes, correct. So, so basically, the way it would work in a year would be. Through February through to about August, September, I would be with the academy teams, uh, and then I would transition in with the, the W League side, and, and they're only there for a short stint because most of their season is spent in America, um, and then they would come back, and it would be a fairly condensed season in Australia in the W League, and, and we work with the, you know a fair few uh, Matildas and top top level American players as well. So, you know, I'm sure everyone's aware that the standard's quite high um, within the Melbourne City W League team, and, and we were very successful over the the, the last four three four years. So you, you won this year's premiership, didn't you? Yeah, we yeah we like obviously I wasn't there for the for the final unfortunately because um I had to get over here but uh, yeah I was I was there for most of the season and you know I was really happy that they won and and, and they deserve nothing but the best because uh, they were the best team all year. Congratulations, Adam. That's uh, you certainly were the backbone of that for sure. Fantastic. All right, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll yeah. chat. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll chat a bit about that later. Look, fifty percent of this podcast is is football related and you know technical technical and stuff like that but I do want to talk a little bit about career development so we'll just get into that just quickly your junior soccer career what did you do before Marceline I think I met you when you were at Marceline College in Melbourne yes I think I think we, we met originally when I was 16 years old and, and I was just in the 
one of the, the academies set up in set up in uh, Victoria, and he ran some fitness testing, and, and I just thought that was really cool. So, I mean, that was, that was how I remembered you, and then I went overseas for a couple of years after that to Italy um, to, to try and get a contract, and I got a contract for a year, but then obviously it wasn't probably worth staying because I wasn't going to make any big bucks, um, which is when I contacted you again and, and got back in touch and basically got me back on the right track. Um, but but in yeah, Italy, so then I just ended up... Who did you play with in Italy? So the first year, I was basically just looking for a club. I was just trying, and I had a little stint at Bastano um, with the, the under-18s. And then uh, the following year, I spent a whole season at Spencer Palstrom, which is a CSD team. Um, and that was just, yeah, great experience because, obviously, it wasn't the highest level in Italy, but there was definitely some high-level players that had played at you know, a fairly good level. So I think that the biggest takeaway from that whole experience was you know the ability to, to live away from home, obviously, and then... And then to experience the cutthroatness of, of, of football and, and, and elite sport. And I think at any level of, of sport, you're going to learn different things about your life and, and, and how to conduct yourself and discipline and whatnot. But that experience there sort of you know, helped shape the way I am as a coach and, and gave me insight into football that I probably wouldn't have had if I had stayed in Australia. So I'm, I'm very grateful that I was able to have that experience and, and, and learn from it and apply it to day to day. So Serie D in Italy, how would you compare that to say MPL one, MPL two in Australia? Yes, so I would say it's, it's like it's a mixed bag because the, the top Serie D teams would probably compete with some A League teams, but then the bottom Serie D teams lose to an MPL team. So the team I was with were probably you know mid range in, in that regard, but I would say on average it's about MPL one standard. Um, just a very very different style of of, of play and, and it's. To a certain extent, it is it's professional in that you train every day. So unlike MPL, where it's you know two three sessions a week, um, there they, they take it very seriously, and, and you're in the paper or the local paper every day. Um, they're reporting on different things, so it gives you a real a real feel for professional football, which is very different to Australia, just because it's the, you know the number four or five sport in in the country. So their football is massive. So, so if you're in Serie D and you're 17, 16, you can progress to Serie G and go right through the system. Yeah, most, def- most definitely. Like, I think, obviously, you've got to be a top player. Um, you know, I wouldn't say I was the, the best player to probably reach all the way up to Serie A, but um, you know, there's, there was definitely opportunities to potentially you know, look at Serie G but, or Serie C, but the reality is to, to go to that level, you're, you're probably not going to get paid the type of money that's worth saying. Um, you know, as a 17, 18-year-old, and unless you really want to stick it out, it was probably the better decision to come back home and, and, and start studying um, and, and then playing locally because you actually find a lot of players, even, you know, past teammates that I used to play with potential have actually come to Australia to play in the Yeah, it's, 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 it's a very different environment and, and an environment that probably most Australians aren't used to, but I think that's why, you know, Italian football is so good and, and they develop so many good players. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what was the style like in Serie D compared to MPL? Obviously, MPL is quite physical. Was Serie D a little bit more technical? Or what, what, what yeah. yeah, I would say that, I would say that the, the, the biggest difference is the physicality. Like, MPL football um, is, is very much cracked and bashed. It's gone a lot better, um, especially the, the top tier of MPL. There's a lot of you know, top-level talent playing there that you know, arguably could be playing, could be playing A-League if, uh, if the opportunity arose, but unfortunately there's, there's not enough teams. Um, yeah, yeah. Whereas City of D was was very very tactical in nature. Yeah. Um, you know, every every player has good technique, and the coaches, all the coaches there are excellent. So from a tactical perspective, I'd probably say it's at a higher level. Um, but saying that, in, in the MPL, it's, it's very very physical. Uh, and you know, that, that was one criticism I got when I was there was that was that I was almost too physical. They would <laughs> call me a rugby player. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think that, that was just the, the Aussie nature uh, in terms of going hard. But, yeah, very, very very technical, very tactical, very disciplined is, is probably the, the biggest difference. I suppose it, we'll, bring, we'll go back to that point later about the physical nature. And, and obviously, Australia tried to go away from physical and being more technical to, the, the, I suppose, the Dutch influence, for want of a better word, in 2006. And... and I suppose the question is, was that a mistake? Because the rubber, the the, the brand of an Australian was, you know, the, the tough defender and the the, the hard nosed players that people seem to love in the past. Um, it's an interesting comment you made. What was a brief thought yourself that have we gone too far trying to unearth highly technical players in Australia, which probably don't exist, or I don't know. It's, it's just it's a fascinating area. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting. I think, yeah, we look, Australia definitely needed to start working more technically and tactically. There's no doubt. To, to be able to compete at the highest level, you need to be good tactically and you need to be good technically. Unfortunately for me, personally, in my opinion, I think we've gone away a little bit from, from the physical component and just that competitive nature, uh, that never-say-die attitude. I, I would say that the biggest criticism I have of the next generation is that that, that lack of competitiveness that you know, Australians always have. Um, you know, if you look at that 2006 squad, some of the players in there, sensational players, and just with an absolute will to win and never die attitude. Yeah. Whereas now, you know, that's harder to come by, and, and also it's sort of something you almost have to coach into the players, which I find really interesting. Um, whereas, you know, when I was growing up, and, and I'm probably not even of that generation, but I still played with a lot of players, um, you know, that probably should have made it because they just had exceptional attitudes and, and, and a great competitive desire to win. But maybe a lack of opportunity didn't get to, to the, you know, get to the top of their, their capacity. But you know, I, th- I think it's saying that we've, we've lost in our identity as a nation and I'd love to see it back. And that hence, you know, I feel like I can play a role in that um, working within the academy environment um, to try and influence the, the next generation. Be, obviously, be very good physically, but then also change their mindset around competing. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's like a brand that we had then, wasn't it? It was like a brand of, uh, <clears throat> yeah, you're right, no doubt, you've got to be good, you've got to, you've got to have the technical nature, but Australians had a brand which, uh, go back to that because that's a fascinating topic and, I mean, there's going to be a lot of different opinions on that. Okay, let's go back to your career. So I, I do remember that when you did come back, you still had a burning desire to go back overseas, you wanted to go to Asia and, you know, you wanted to get out of here, get out of Australia again and, and then... Things changed, you know. You you turned up and you finished up doing a certificate three. Just explain me through your, your mindset at those days, where you're right in the middle of uh, making decisions as a young guy. Yeah, yeah. Look, definitely. When I come back, I, I was I was very keen to get back over, or at least you know explore opportunities in, in different countries because I had a burning desire to to be a professional footballer. And, uh, yeah, like, you know, th- there was an opportunity in, in Asia, in Thailand in particular, which is, not, you know, not renowned for, for football at the highest level, but I just wanted to be pro that badly that I didn't really care where I was going to go. I was willing to just give up everything and, and give it a crack. And, and that's sort of where, you know, meeting you was, was, a, it was a big advantage in my life because it sort of put me on track in terms of, you know, what I should get my priorities right and, 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 and get back to school and, and start your start degree in sports science and, and then go from there and then potentially pursue professional football down the track. I suppose I just felt at the time that if you played some quality NPL soccer or football for a couple of years and obviously got your career together, that you might actually get to your aim anyway of playing locally at A-League or going overseas again, you know, so it seemed like two forks in the road, they could lead to the same thing anyway with a bit better sort of result. That, that was probably my logic talking to you at the time, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. No so doubt. You did your Cert 3, was that right? You, you, you started in the fitness industry, didn't you? And you started with us today. Yeah, yeah. yeah so I did, did my Certificate 3 in fitness, which was basically like the entry level into, into fitness or professional fitness training. Yeah. Um, and then from, from there, it was just a case of working uh, with yourself and, and, and Piero at Advanced Athlete Performance at the time. Um, and basically just doing as much work as I could possibly do and learn as much as I could off, off any coach that I was working with. So I think, like, you know, in terms of development, that people underestimate how important it is just to go and coach. And it doesn't matter what you coach, just make sure you're, you're doing something and you're honing your craft and you're, and you're learning different things from different types of athletes and different types of sports. So I feel like that, that played a, a major role in building, a, you know, an excellent foundation for, for the knowledge I have today. And, and you're ever, you're, you know, you're ever learning, but I think that, you know, especially working yourself, lays the foundation for the way I coach um, day in, day out. Yeah, so at, before you started your degree, I think you did it at the same time, you were working with different sports, weren't you? Like netball and football and, foot, you know, AFL or whatever, and kids, yeah? Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. So, look, it was, it was a wide range of different types of athletes. So you work with netball, some AFL players, um, different types of uh, track and field type people and uh, basketball, volleyball. Basically, whatever came up, I was willing to try it and, and just experience um, going in with, you know, with a real sort of open mind to, to learning anything and, and then also, you know, basically honing my craft as best I could in, in that environment. And, yeah, I, th- I think it's really important to have a very holistic view of, of conditioning and, and, and fitness in general and not just staying in one stream. And obviously, most of my career has been in football, but... 
having that foundation of different sports has probably been the biggest advantage compared to a lot of practitioners in this environment because they don't, a lot of them don't really understand, okay, we're going to develop speed. You need to know speed through working with track and field athletes or yourself. You, worked in tra- you, you were a track and field athlete yourself. So learning, you know, the actual, the actual uh, discipline in, a, in an exclusive environment is going to put you in good stead when you're actually working in a, a professional sporting environment. And, and the reality is it's a team and it's a team sport environment. So a lot of things you want to do, you actually can't do, but you need to know the, the background uh, knowledge to, in order to implement in it. I personally find it bizarre how, you know, and I'm, we'll talk about Bahajan later, but how people, some people just view soccer as the, or football as the only sport in the world. And it's like it was here before the world was here. I just find it quite odd that similarities between sports is massive, huge crossover. Yeah, definitely. I think that, look, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm pretty big on the, the conditioning component when it comes to football, but obviously the, the, the biggest sort of thing you need in this environment is just that understanding of, of the game and being able to have the conversation with the coaches because without that, you can't implement anything. Um, and once, once you make them understand what you're trying to achieve and it's for the better of the team and the better of the athlete, then it's just a non-negotiable that you, you, know, you do conditioning and you do different things that are you know, potentially, shall I say, untraditional to the sport. But you, def- you just you just have to do it these days. Like that, that is reality. Like the game is just too quick, and and you're playing you know 50 plus games a year potentially in the top league. If the players aren't fit, they won't last. We'll, we'll chat about that later. It's still a point of contention and, and controversy in in in, uh, in in the football environment. So so you're at university, and you were also interestingly you were working in a factory or something. What were you doing then? Yes, yeah, so I worked for, for Nike, and I was uh, I was working in the online store, and I'd, I'd argue, you know, my manager, if you, my ex-manager, if he's on, if he's listening, would I would say that I was the best box packer in the in the business <laughs> at the time. <laughs> um, That's so we, well, basically, it was just, you know, yeah, it was just, you know, nine to five or nine to nine to four, whatever it was, of just picking product, packing product, and sending it out, and that was just on your knees, just getting down and dirty and, and, and just doing a completely different job to, to what I'm doing now, which, you know what, I, I think that, that actual experience sort of helped build a bit of discipline and, and determination in terms of your career development because those that haven't experienced that type of work or, you know, not to say that it's, you know, a lesser job or whatever, but it's, it's got nothing to do with what I'm doing now, but it's, it's still very valuable in terms of your development. So you've, got, you've got to get something out of everything you do. Well, that's right, yeah, and I, I agree with you. A lot, a lot of times it if somebody put on their CV when they applied for a strength and conditioning job that they'd worked at Target or whatever, I thought that was a good thing because they'd been involved with hard work, work ethic or customer service and people don't realise that. So you were doing full-time university too at the time. Yeah, yeah so full-time at uni and then full-time work just to, to make a bit of cash um, to, to get by because then I was I was paying rent as well at the time in Brunswick. So just trying <laughs> to make everything work and then obviously playing at night times as well so it was a pretty hectic schedule um, at and still doing life. and still doing some PT yeah yeah so yeah it was, <laughs> yeah, it was crazy so it was working at Nike doing PT playing and then studying full time was just yeah it was outrageous but you know I, I think that a lot of and I, I hope they don't mind me saying this a lot of people graduates you know are prima donnas they've never worked and they think that a master's degree or master's qualification will guarantee them work and they don't understand hard work and they haven't been through uh, that, that area because, I mean, as you say, uh, the work you did in the factory is exactly what you're doing in Houston. You've got to go to work and you've got to work hard. There's no difference. There's absolutely no difference. I think there's quite often a common thread to people that have been successful. They've worked hard in other areas also. Absolutely. Like, it was, it was, we even went as far, when, when I was working at, at Melbourne City, I stepped with some of my other staff, like uh, Ralph Napoli and Cody Williamson and, and, and Zach Nelson, and we were basically, let's, let's get the boys to go and do some, some tradesman work, completely unrelated to football, just to make it work. Yeah. Just to make them experience the, what, what it is to actually get up at, you know, 5 a.m. or whatever it is, and work eight, ten hours on site doing some hard labour, because a lot of it, again, we talk about graduates trying to get into this industry, which is, is tough as it is. Being a player is just as tough. So if they haven't experienced that type of thing, they're, they're never going to make it. Yeah. Because um, you need to have that will to will to go on. Um, so no, I, I completely. I think it's so important. Like just if you're not doing PC, if you're not doing anything, just work. Make sure that you can at least work. 
exactly. Yeah, yeah. Just just turn over some money and then do some PT on the side. I mean, it's interesting as a little aside. When I was in the AFL, we'd find that the players who were at university or doing things on the side uh, were the ones that were more busy, but actually were more punctual. And the players who weren't doing anything, they actually weren't doing nothing, would be the ones missing all their Pilates appointments or rehab appointments. It was like, hang on, that doesn't make sense. These guys, you know, the guys that have got no time <laughs> are well organised. And the guys that do stuff all and just play computer games, they miss everything. Anyway, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a fascinating area, that whole thing in development, and it's, it's a fascinating story and how hard you worked in the early days. So, so give me a bit of an idea about your football soccer career. We talked about Serie D. Who have you played with from Serie D right through to now? And you know, Obviously, you're not playing now. Yeah, okay, yeah. So before we got the old, I was playing for Heidelberg United, um, the under-21s, or yeah, I called the under-21s at the time, and then basically from there, headed over to Italy and come back. I was with Hume City for a year. Um, then it was through Morn Zebras. Uh, then I, I took a hiatus from the game and I played futsal for a year, which was really cool. Um, actually, I actually went to Thailand on uh, like a, an Asian Champions League, and I'd never played the sport in my life. So I basically just sat on the bench the whole time. But unbelievable sport and experience. Um, even even that, like just just trying to learn a new sport and, and and develop and take the same approach to anything that that you have to do in, in life was 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 very interesting. And I learned a lot about football doing that as well. Um, then come back and I was playing with the Woodruffy Rangers and then Dandenong the Thunder and then uh, my, my last probably years playing football was at Pauline. Yeah, so you've had a pretty interesting career and you've been right in the midst of it, which is really important too. It's uh, quite different to a lot of um, graduates who some of them don't even know how to do a bodyweight squat. But anyway, that, that's being a bit cynical. Um, yeah. Well, that's 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 another another big passion I think. Like if you're gonna into this industry, you, you need to know how to train and you need to know what it feels like. Um, so that's, yeah, I, I think absolutely, if there's anything that any graduate can do is just go and train or go, go and get a coach and, and, and experience what it is to, to get fit and get strong. Yeah, exactly. I, I, often with a lot of my uh, interns or, or staff in the AFL, I used to tell them to do a level one Pilates course do Olympic weightlifting level one and go and get a track coach and do some sprinting and just knock that off in one year for me and you'll have a good base. <laughs> uh, yeah, 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 perfect. Yeah. So, so you were working at AAP, you're studying, you're working in a factory and then an opportunity came up to be an intern at Melbourne City and that was a tough decision for you. Just explain how that happened and how even tougher the life became then. So originally, the original opportunity came through, I think at the time was Melbourne Heart approached yourself, um, looking for some GPS units. And then uh, you helped them out and, and obviously loaned them the, the units at the time. And then basically, I think my first experience at the club was, was still Melbourne Heart and it was doing uh, fitness testing for the goalkeepers. Yep. Um, I think it was, it was myself and Liam Annette at the time. We, we both went and we gave them a hand and... And then from there, Simone uh, Epamonti was there, the fitness coach at the time for, for Melbourne City, and, and he brought Liam and myself in, um, well, along with Ralph Napoli, they, they brought us in, and, and basically we just we both interned, and you know I interned with the, the youth team for, for a year, or a year and a half, or something along those lines, and, and basically from there there was obviously there was no job going, so I just took on a role as a like a community coach, and I ended up just coaching at various schools across Victoria. Um, probably running, you know, anywhere from six to eight sessions a day of, of different technical things. So again, unrelated to the fitness. However, it was still coaching, and and I saw that as a foot in the door. Um, and and at the same time, it was a case of doing a full day of that, and then going straight to team training and, and just continuing to volunteer. Um, so I was staying involved that way because I just I just knew that if you if, you, if you're there, you may as well put in the time because it, it'll pay off eventually. Because um, I think a lot of people would expect to get a job straight away, but I, I knew that I just have to keep going because, you know, I may never get that opportunity again um, to be exposed to, to high-level professionals. So I thought, you know, I'll finish the day, no problem. I'll go and I'll go and coach with the youth team, and then and then we'll see what happens in the, in the coming years. And obviously, that that resulted in a role um, a couple of years down the track, and then. Yeah, so that, that, then I worked, obviously worked there for a few years and then I, I've, I've ended up here. So it was, yeah, many, many years of, of free work, um, many years of a little bit of disappointment and, and, and hoping things could have gone a different way. But I think, you know, just sticking with it and, and being very, very persistent and determined to, you know, to try and achieve something in the, in the industry because I've always been passionate about 
being professional whatever I did and, and, and in particular football because, you know, that, that might have stayed within my heart. So I just thought, let's give it a crack and, and, and just keep pushing and see what happens. And, and obviously I was rewarded in the end. And, you know, I thank Melbourne City for the opportunity where it came about because, you know, the, the club is fantastic and, and I learned so much from so many great professionals there. Um, you know, and, and it's put me in really good stead to where I am now. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to get an opportunity Houston Dynamo um, through one of my one of my good friends Alex Calder, who, who's currently working. He's another Australian, um, so he sort of opened the door there and got the interview, and, and we and sort of just go from there. So, yeah, I, I, I think the take-home message is that it's a bloody hard trip, and you know I'm not going to say that I'm successful or anything just yet. Like I'm still building, and, and I feel like I've got many things to, to, to succeed in for the future, but. But you need to you just need to keep working and pushing and, and doing as much free time as you can and, and don't expect anything because the game doesn't owe you anything and and no one's going to look after you if you, if you don't put in the work. So so when you how long were you an intern for? Yeah, I was in and out of it, but it, it almost ended up being about three years. Okay, so how I long before you got started, the job yeah. doing the clinics? You know, it was, the... it was it was yeah two years before I got the full time job. Um, oh, I was gee. working part time for a short time. That again. So you you you're basically an intern for two years and working in the factory and playing soccer and doing PT. Yeah, correct. Wow. Then you got the job doing the clinics, which is as we said is unrelated to sports science. How long was that for? That was that was for a year and a year and a bit from memory, and then I transitioned into the the sports science role. On you know not you weren't you weren't going to get rich on the money that they gave you, but a great opportunity. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Exactly. <laughs> and I started part time, so I was I was part time sports science at, at, uh, to take on my very very first role. And it, yeah, it probably wasn't you know, it's the most amount of money I'm ever going to make. But you know, I thought you know what, who cares? I'll just do it. I'll do it full time. Even though it's part time, I'll do it full time because you can't do the role part time. You need to do it. You, do, you need to do it the best you can, and, and then you know I'll be rewarded later. I just I just knew that I could be rewarded later if I kept kept pushing. Fantastic. Yeah, no, great story. Hard work. Uh, hard work, persistence, and obviously, uh, you, you know your stuff too. So, so then you, when you were at um, Melbourne City, you, you finished, you'd have, you obviously finished your degree. You started your Masters too, didn't you? started my Masters in, uh, in Sports Science, in brackets football performance at Victoria University. Yep. Actually, out of interest, so what did you... I don't want to put you on the spot, but what did you gain out of that apart from a qualification? Well, I think the biggest thing, and, and you know, I've, I've openly said this to them as well, because I recently went on a, a, a call with Victoria University on you know, getting new graduates into the, the program. The biggest, biggest advantage was that the trip we did to Madrid as <laughs> part of the course. And, yeah, like, that, 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 was, that was absolutely sensational. Like, I, I still bug them, like, can you just take me off a trip just to be a supervisor or something? Because the, the people you met on that trip in terms of who were giving the presentations was sensational. Um, the, you know, one presenter in particular that I remember fondly was uh, uh, this guy called Julio Gungata, and he's in a renowned protective bureaucratization. Um, so just the, the things we, we learned from these types of professionals was probably the best part and, and the most I got out of that trip. And, and the other thing I think, you know, it's a little, again, unrelated to sports science, but you just, you, I got discipline out of it, more discipline and the ability to just keep grinding through and, and, and make sure I'm getting it done because, unfortunately, you do need to have a certain level of qualification to, to be recognised as a very minimum. Um, but, you know, you and I both know that it's, it's not all about that. It's, it's about your relationships and, and how you can actually apply your knowledge in a, in a, in a professional environment, which is the most important But I, you know, I, I, I do advise people to, to do further study because you, you do need it. You know, everyone's doing PhDs are the new normal now. Yeah, I'm too old to start a PhD now. <laughs> I'll be, yeah. be 95. You're never, too, you're never too old. In Madrid, what, what, what was the, what was the, what struck you there in terms of, you know, technique, tactical, physical? What was it? What was something that stuck in your brain there? Yeah, there, there was there were two things in particular. So the, again, the, the presenter Julio, he, he spoke a lot about basically just how to apply physical, you know, what, what we're trying to describe physically with a tactical nature in mind. So obviously everyone knows the buzzword everyone talks about is tactical periodization. Um, and that can mean so many things. And obviously, you know, it originated in Portugal and, and there's certain things that I, I think are fantastic. There's certain things I completely disagree with. Um, but just using that as a foundation to build upon my own ideas was was excellent. 
and, and I use a lot of those ideas to this day with, with coaches um, to find common ground, but at the same time, achieve. For me, you need to run and you need to do gym more than it prescribes in, in traditional tactical periodization. So that, so that was excellent. I really enjoyed that. And the second thing was that the presenter, unfortunately, I've forgotten her name, from Athletic Bill Bell, and, and she just touched on just the mental side of development, especially for, for youth footballers, and, and touched on first team footballers as well, because that club in particular is renowned for, for promoting players from within their own academy to, to the first team because they have a lesser budget. Um, and it was just about. Uh, you know, understanding the young mind and, and, and what it goes through and, and the pressures that are involved with the lead sport and just taking a different a different look at things from from a development perspective because as much as we try to push players and, and we demand the most out of them and we you got to do this you got to do that you got to you got to do school as well they they're just human beings and it, and it just made me you know recognise that okay yeah we're getting into a lead sport and we can push players hard but you still need to you know be in touch with them as a human being and and develop that relationship more so than anything because that that's what will get you ultimate buy-in. So that, that was probably the two the two big takeaways I took from that whole trip. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, apart from apart from all the nice the nice wine and pop ups as well. <laughs> yeah, so so we will move on to, you know, we we've spoken heaps about it and obviously Vahajan, you know, he puts himself out on social media, he probably makes a reasonable amount of money too, uh, and probably does a good job too. Um, so he really pushes the, I suppose, for want of a better word, the anti-strength and conditioning, anti-fitness versus pure tactical periodization, for want of a better word. Again, what, what's your what's your view on on the way he portrays things and the the positives and negatives of what he's put out? Yeah, look, I think again, there's there's so many disadvantages and advantages to the way he sort of goes about the way he does. But I think ultimately he is a little bit misinterpreted um, with regards to how he prescribes fitness. And, and obviously there is, is very much a very much a product in a way, like especially how it was rolled out in Australia. Okay, you've got to do this and you've got to do that. Like I remember going on the, the, the C licence and the B licence um, for the FFA and it, they're talking about fitness and you've got to do it like this. And, you know, I made a few comments like, well, that actually doesn't make any sense. But they didn't get it. So it's sort of... I like the idea of it, and I like the idea that it's you know it's all football and this and that, but it just doesn't factor in so many different issues that you have at sub elite level in particular. Um, and a lot of the, the the methods that he prescribes in professional sport just to me are, are not that functional because you can't guarantee that one you're going to get the, the maximum amount of intensity and, and just keep progressing that way. Two, these days we use GPS, so we, we more or less prescribe games and minutes and intensity based off that. And, and three, like the fact that there's no gym involved in all these things, like there's just there's too many holes in the program. For my life, and personally, saying that, I, I do use a lot of the methods as a baseline, like in terms of dimensions of fields and, and different things, but that is not something that, you know, he invented per se. Like conditioning games have always existed. You know, you talk to any coach, like I was doing them when I was young when I was in Italy, like they do 3v3s and, and their idea in Italy, you know, must be intensity like let's, let's do everything with maximum intensity. So they had ideas of what they were doing. He sort of just packaged it all up and, and put okay. it out to everyone and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and sold it as a great product. Um, but I think it's, it's as good as the, the professional delivering it. Well, it's interesting. In, in, in the 90s, I think hockey in Australia, if I remember rightly, in AFL, you know, they were pushing the small-sided games and all those structures. So it's not like something that's uh, completely out of left field or football-specific, you know, you know, that whole sort of structure of fields and games and small-sided games that, that that was being used in other sports too but it's not it's not new yeah but it's smart guy he's packaged it up and i suppose for some people who don't have such knowledge it's a it's a good way to to set up a program in terms of uh, a day-to-day week-to-week thing in 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 a lot of settings and look to be fair i was actually i was exposed to i was exposed to being one of the athletes in that type of training program when i was playing for an mpl team and yeah. And yeah, it, it is enjoyable to a certain extent, but again, as having understanding the theology of, of, of the sport and everything, there were certain things that I, I didn't feel I was prepared to play personally. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and, and obviously the standard sometimes doesn't allow for it because the better players can get away with not training as hard, and you know, the worst players are going to have to run more to press than with the ball, etc. There's just there's a lot of variables when it comes to small side of games, and I think you know, without going into details of conditioning games and using using the ball for fitness like there's a lot of research on that for, and you can change different constraints and whatnot but just as a very generalized comment yes get fit with the ball 100 percent 
But for me, you need to do pop up running on top of that. Oh, well, that's right. And I think we know that, you know, if somebody's highly skilled and a bit lazy, they'll play a small sided game and they'll do nothing. Um, and if you can't monitor that, it's just not as effective. There's, there's one little sort of byproduct of a small sided game which, we, which can go astray. Yeah. Yeah, correct. And then, and then you, you throw in another variable of a lack of staff, a lack of equipment, all of a sudden the game slows down, the intensity goes down. Like, there's so many variables you need to make that, that game high level to actually get something out of it physically, which you 100% can, because I still do it. Like, I, I'm a big believer in, okay, yeah. we're going to do conditioning games, this is what the variables are and, and whatnot. But it's different because in, in my environment, there's 10 staff around the field that you can just throw balls in. Um, yeah. So, yeah, there's... there's there's, there's many differences from yeah, of course, and then ten staff shouting at players and get, keeping them motivated, which has been well researched too. You know, the motivation level of a small-sided game can impact on things. And then, yeah, correct. And then obviously the GPS feedback. You know, if somebody's really doing nothing, uh, you can pick that up. Uh, I suppose my take on Vahajan is, yeah, there are negatives and positives, and, and obviously he's done a good job. But I just don't like the way he goes about conducting himself on Twitter and social media and slamming people and taking advantage of clubs with injuries. That's each their own. Um, if that's how he wants to brand himself, no worries. Uh, recently, you might not have seen it, uh, so I apologise, but Gary Neville interviewed Thierry Henry, is that right? Yeah, recently about yep. training. And I, look, I'm a bit out of context here, so but, but they're talking about not having done formal weight training and yet, you know, he was a very physical player and he fended off players and... And I think it, it could could have got misinterpreted by people because even in AFL, I've, I've seen it since the 80s, you know, some players get away with it because they're physically developed. They may, have, they may have played heaps of sports when they were young, you know, they had a fantastic development and they're just beasts anyway. Um, yeah, what, what's your view on when, when people say things like that? Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you in that, you know, certain, certain athletes are a little bit more gifted, if you will, in, in the physical department, um, but I think for the for the large majority of, of players that that are up and coming, like it's just an absolute non-negotiable. And it, and you know, you'd almost argue to say like, if they had more strength conditioning through the nineties, even eighties, nineties, even early two thousands, in football in particular, there may be a few more players that you know that, that we've all loved. Like you know, the greatest example I think of is like Michael Owen. He used to comment saying, you know, oh, I couldn't play because I did my hammy this many times. Like. What was his hamstring rehab like? And maybe if it was in today's environment, maybe we would have seen a better player and a player that played for longer. So I, I, I just think that it's, it's a little bit of a cop-out comment in that certain players are more gifted in that regard. And, and, and we all know that as practitioners. Um, but for the large majority, it's not the case. And, and, a, and a good strength and conditioning program and, 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 and professionals dictating what, what people are doing day-to-day and, and monitoring everyone um, on a daily basis as well is going to be better for the athlete in the long term. That's right, and I think that, you know, from a bell curve or statistical perspective, everybody always goes to the outlier, and and then they they keep bringing up the outlier, which is which is a really dangerous sort of uh, opinion based way of uh, logic, I suppose, in, in the sports arena. I found that in tennis too, and it was interesting that I, I read recently, um, you know, a group of players like Moore and Viduka and that were interviewed on Zoom about. You know, what's happening in Australian football. And, and Viduka made a very strong point that he felt they should never have dismantled the Australian Institute of Sport and the Institute system throughout Australia in 2006 because he felt that it was producing, at the top end, uh, a lot of great players because of the, the elite training that they were getting in, and obviously producing the Australian brand of player. So, yeah, what, what's your view on, on the way that was all dismantled? It seemed really weird for a couple of years, you know, with the... The NTC program, I thought that was just really archaic. It was terrible. The kids were just getting no physical at all. Some of the kids I used to have to rehab were just, were just hacks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Look, uh, I think it was all, it was all very abrupt. Um, they sort of just dismantled it and, and, and started putting all these different, you know, Victorian and, and New South Wales, their own different academies and, and whatnot and institutes that, they completely disbanded the, the whole physical development program. Um, you know, they did have some people in place, but they were very much on like an intern basis. And I don't think they were getting the exact same access as what the AOS had. And that there's, there's probably a fair few different agendas of, of you know certain people in the federation. Um, and unfortunately, that's probably led to the players aren't going to 
have success from that. Just, I, I feel like we had a lost generation. You know, you look after that 06, 06 team, there hasn't really been some top players really come through. Top is always going to be fairly good because they're the best players in Australia, but what comes after that? Yeah. You know, like you know I've played with many, many good players, even within the NPL competition that never really had an opportunity um, to, to go beyond. And, you know, you look at some of the young kids that, that we inherited when I was working at Melbourne City, like the same thing, Lars, like just absolutely raw with no physical development, just an absolute disaster. Can't run, can't jump, can't can't land, can't change direction, can't do anything. You know, and, and that's a criticism for even the, like the PE program, you know, as a country. But, uh, yeah, but for me, I think if they brought the AIS back, we, we may see more success. Or, alternatively, you know, you look, you look at your Melbourne cities, your Melbourne countries, all the things, they need to invest more money. The, well, the federations and, and, and they need to invest more money in the program um, nationally to, to make sure that these players are playing with each other every single week and not going down to MPL competitions where, you know, as good as is playing against older players, you want to be playing against the best talent in the country at all times. I was in AFL and I used to take, and this is a top end argument, not not at the base, you know, not at the, at the little kids thing. This is a top end argument. When I was in the AFL, I used to take from the nine from 1990 actually to Ron Smith right through to 2006 with Stephen O'Connor. I used to take AFL clubs to the AIS program uh, to learn off them, which was crazy because they had you know heaps of football coaches, all the strength and conditioning and sports science and all the Vadukas and all those guys. And then, you know, you had Ernie Merrick at the Victorian Institute of Sport. So they and all the other um, institutes had fantastic programs that were holistic and uh, feeding into the AIS. So, you know, you probably had 200 players, males, 300 being serviced really well. Now, obviously, as you say, the clubs need to take up the slack now. But, yeah, it's a, it's, 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 it's a fascinating period of how they're going to set up football in Australia at that top end elite, and, and obviously at MPL, uh, I, uh, you know the, the, the kids, the parents pay huge amounts of money, and I, 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 don't, I, I don't know if I'm wrong here in saying this, but when when it first came out, they were going to be promised all these different medical things and different things, and all it became was just an extra nice training for two thousand bucks. Yes, correct, correct. So, and, and that's the other thing, like the, the cost of playing in this country, in, well, in Australia, is, is outrageous. You know, like I, again, I've only been in America a short period, but just the way they they run and the ideas they have about youth development, just you know, again, they're nowhere near Europe, but they're still ahead of Australia in that regard because players are coming to the system on a fully paid program from 15 years old onwards, under 15s up. It's a fully paid program, yeah, MLS that is, and then they have the opportunity to potentially sign with an MLS first team. They should play second division, which is also professional. If not, they go to college. And then they're in the college system for three, four years, and then they can potentially still have another crack at professional football. So the development in the country like America is is, is better in that regard because they're just giving, they're maximising the opportunity for the players to make it. There's there's just more opportunity, and there's more teams as well, which helps them to be the country. I get it, but I just think Australia can be doing better in that regard. And, you know, we, we can't just be relying on. Well, I don't know how many how many good MPL youth programs there are, and who's running them, and you know, are they giving opportunities to conditioning coaches to go in there and help? Not to take over the program, but to, to help the development of the, of the athlete. Because, you know, me and you both know that to play at the highest level, you need to be very, very good physically. Otherwise, you, won't play, you can't compete. And I think, I think the more we understand that, the, the more we can potentially sway towards getting a, a much more specific program at, at youth level. And that's right. And, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's a reverse argument. Because you know, a lot of people... I mean, football or soccer in the States is, what, number six sport or whatever? And yet, technically, they'd, technically they'd be nowhere as good, the players, as the best in Brazil or, you know, Italy. There's no way, right? But no. how, how did Australia compete in the golden era? How, how, did, how does the USA compete? Well, obviously, they compete physically, <laughs> which is, probably leads us to the, yeah. the USA women. What, what, what's the take on their college system and why the girls or why the women in, in, in the US dominate football, which is pretty fascinating, really. The, the biggest thing I learned in, when I was working in women's football was that physicality plays a massive, massive role in, in success or being unsuccessful. You know, you look at the, 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 the women's national team for, for America, physically they're, they're all exceptional. 
and and they're able to you know to bully their their opposition and and you know the majority of players they're fast they're, they're strong relative relative to the to the, you know the sport and I, I just think that that is such an important important facet in, in especially in the women's game um, and you know like a lot of players we had at Melbourne City at the time they played in the the, w, the NWSL the National League of America and the biggest thing they always said was the difference was that the American League is so much more physical. There's a lot more running, there's a lot more faster players and, and all the players coming out of college, uh, they've done strength and conditioning programs, so they're ready to compete. You know, we, we had a few players at the time that had come out of college and, and we signed on their, their first pro deal and exceptional, very far, very strong, very confident in the gym, no problems. Um, you know, whereas a lot of the girls that, 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 that I would see coming out of the, like the NTC or the VCC programs within the Victorian system, I would, I, you know, I'll be honest, very, very poor physically compared to their American counterparts. So there's obviously a massive gap. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting, isn't it? It's, it's probably magnified more in females because as we go back to the Tier Henry, Henry example, you know, you're going to get some beasts, some guys who've played a lot of sports or just like the Hulk, you know? Are just, just yeah, they are being plucked out of so many. There's so many people, so many males playing football that you're going to still get that physical, technical mix even without some people that have done the, the, the specific work. But with females, the, the 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 correct approach gets gets magnified more in a way, and is probably a better example. Or that, the girls in Brazil would be technically superior to the girls in the USA. You know, I, I'm not sure, but I'd assume. So. No, absolutely, absolutely. And and these are comments from players themselves. They they, they know that. Like obviously, there's some very good technical female players in, in the women's game, because they, they won the World Cup and they wouldn't be there for no reason. But at the same time, yeah, physically they've they've done the work and, and they're able to compete. You know, I, I, I know that the English national team, for example, they. They have certain standards physically, otherwise you can't make it to their team. You know, and you look at you look at the even the Matildas team. All the players that start are physically much better than the ones that don't start. Yeah. Because otherwise they just can't compete. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, it's 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 a it's a big argument. This this one in well, not big a bit. Let's let's just finish off with work in factories and you work for nothing and you know you did the whole process. What what's your advice to kids? Well, not kids, to people starting in SNC or graduating or becoming an intern at Melbourne City, you know, and, and what's what's been your observation with some of them, positive and negative? Well, to answer the first question, I think the biggest piece of advice I would give is just to knuckle down and, and work as hard as you possibly can and don't expect anything. Because if you just come into an environment, especially a professional environment, where... The reality is, as much as they care about you know helping you, they're there to win or they're there to develop players. Like it's a professional environment, so they're not going to spend as much time as you may think. And whether you, if you put in, they'll look after you. If you don't, they don't care. They'll just get rid of you. So it's just a case of having coming with an absolute open mind, um, doing as much as you can, being as helpful as you can, absorbing as much as you can, and then getting out to another environment and go and coach and do a certain three if you have to. Do whatever you need and ask a little one, whatever it is. But start coaching as much as you can, whether it's, you know, I, I did a, a, I don't remember if you working with the Chris Gucciani doing the, the tennis, and it was just like a little bit of conditioning for five minutes. I had like a group for five minutes at a time. Like just being little gigs like that, just to be, be exposed to, even just speaking to people is, is, is very important. Um, second, secondary to that, like good and bad interns, I think good interns, they, they do everything and, and more. Um, they listen, they, they don't get in the way, and they're, they're basically just willing to put in the time without, without being, uh, what's the word, without, without any expectation. They come in with an open mind, ready, ready to work, and, and if they get something out of it, they get something out of it. If not, then they can move on, and they, and they get a good reference out of it at the very minimum. You know, bad, bad interns, they come in, they're opinionated, um, they want a job straight away, they think they're better than they are, and all of a sudden, it's not going to go down well. And, and, and you know, as we both know, in elite sport, all of a sudden, everyone's going to realise that fairly quickly and you'll be talked about and you'll never get a gig. So I, I think it's just, it's, it's just that. Work hard, coach as much as you can, and, and be very, very humble. 
I think uh, we've covered a little bit about your career, which is pretty fascinating, to be honest. And there was a few forks in the road there. And uh, we've covered a few topics, which we could obviously expand on for hours, but didn't want to go on for too long in this podcast. But thanks very much. What, what, what's happening in Houston right now? You're obviously in the midst of uh, COVID-19. You're probably doing Zooms all day. What, what's, 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 what's happening right now? Well, most people, everyone's working from home. Um, Zoom calls with coaches and, and players and like most clubs around the world, apart from Germany, I think about to kick off, but we're sending programs to players and making sure they're staying fit and just listening to the government. And, uh, you know, you may have heard that I think they're looking to open up a little bit around uh, the Houston area or Texas area. Um, you know, I don't know if that's exactly the right thing to do, but we'll, we'll see. Oh, so you weren't, um, you we'll weren't, one, of the pro- you weren't one of the protesters, were you? No. no. Yeah. No, 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 I wasn't. No. <laughs> I prefer not to get. I prefer not to get COVID if possible. Yeah. And yeah. um, yeah, so basically, yeah, we'll just we'll we'll return slightly, slightly um, as per the whatever the government says and the MLS and work in small groups and and, and do, do what we need to do to, to get everyone back and playing. So yeah, we're very, very similar to everyone around the world in terms of what's happening. Okay. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for chatting. Good luck. I hope everything returns to normal pretty quick. Um, chat later. Ciao. Thanks for having me, Lawrence. Thank you. See ya. Thanks to Adam for that chat. That was really fascinating and a fantastic insight into how much work went into developing his career and, and certainly the decisions he had to make at certain times to, to facilitate his development. And I think in this current climate right now, Adam's story should really provide some positive vibes for people uh, to, to keep going because you know, there was a number of years there where he, he worked for little money and had to work outside football and, and I think that's going to be the case for some people but obviously we're going to get through this period in the world and I think sport will return to where it was so it's just important to take, take the takeaway here is is to put your head down, bum up, and and, and work hard for the next year or two and, and, and stay positive. Thanks, Adam.